Well, I'll turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Uh, my goal this morning is singular. I want to rejoice with you in Christ. I want to rest even more fully in Him. I want to grow our hope in Him, in His love for us, in His power. I want to praise and rejoice in our Savior uh, this morning. John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 46 through 54. Look at that. Let's start reading. Therefore he came again to Canaan of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. One of the great promises of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ there is life. Life. There's spiritual life. Reconciliation with the Father. There's forgiven life. It's a restoration back to our Creator. It was enmity when we enter into this world between God and us, but that enmity is removed. Forgiveness is granted. We are no longer an enemy. We are now an adopted child in the family of God. It's the great miracle that from spiritual death we can be made spiritually alive. Spiritual life in Christ. But there is also the hope of physical life. Physical life. The promise of an eternal future of glory and joy. The promise that this life is not all there is. We praise the Lord for that, don't we? This life is not all there is. There is a promised hope. There is a coming physical resurrection from the dead. And it is a glorified existence that awaits us. I am looking forward to my glorified body. I've turned 40. It's downhill from here. (laughs) I have vertigo. I mean, it's awful. It's awful. I went to the eye doctor for the first time in five years. He just shook his head at me like, oh, it's not going to go well in the next couple years for you. I want my glorified body. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So this is why when the Christian dies, when a Christian loved one dies, we mourn, right? But you can fill in the blank, we mourn, but not as those who have no what? Hope. Hope. 
If you know the Gospel of John, you know that this is why John has written this book. John 20, verse 31 explains the purpose. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Here it is. And that believing you may have what? Life. That's why he writes the book. I write so that you will have spiritual life. I, I write that you will one day have physical life, glorified life. I'm writing so that you will have a real life, a, a promised life, a lasting life, a better life. But it's only experienced through Christ. If you finish the verse, I'm writing so that you will have life, but this life is only in His, in Jesus' name. Only Jesus can give you this life. There's no life outside of him. There's only death. And this life, this eternal better life that only Jesus can give has been John's theme since the book has opened. In his prologue in John chapter 1, John writes this. Speaking of the glorious Christ, he says, In him was life. In Him was life. Eternal life resides in Him. And therefore, it's a gift that only He can give to you. Now, you know John chapter 3 with Nicodemus back in verse 15. Jesus makes this grand promise. Whoever believes will in Him, in Christ, have eternal life. He drives the message home in verse 16. Whoever believes in Him. That's the theme of the book. If you believe in Him, you shall not perish, but have eternal life. Look back at verse 36 of chapter 3. John the Baptist tells his disciples that he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And, And as the story of Jesus continues, this promise of life cascades over every page. Look forward to John 5 for a moment. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Look down to verse 28. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Him is life. This is why Christ came. It's why Christ came. I have come that they may have life. Real, reconciled, resurrected, glorified, forever life. Well, this is the point of our passage this morning. As John concludes chapter 4, he focuses on the life that only Jesus can give, but he does it in a different way. He does this in a much more picturesque way. We're still talking about life. And John doesn't here give the promise of life, though he will throughout every page. No, what John does here is he pictures life. He pictures the power of Christ to give this promised life. To grant this life to whomever he chooses to do what he has promised to do. Life is the key 
word. Look at verse 50. Your son lives. Verse 51. His slaves met him saying that his son was living. Verse 53. The words are repeated. Your son lives. Now, if you understand John chapter 4, you know that there's a story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman, right? This story is connected to that how? Look back at verse 10. Verse 10. Here's Jesus' promise to the Samaritan woman. He's going to give her water. What kind of water? Living water. Living water. Same word. Same word. Your son is living. Your son lives. Same word. Look at verse 14. The water I will give will become in him a well springing up to eternal life. Living water. Life. He's promised. John has shown Jesus to promise this life-giving power. And now he shows the picture that Jesus is able to give this life-giving promise. Look at verse 47. 447. The nobleman's son was at the point of death. Jesus will grant life. Now, why do I say that Jesus restoring back to this child temporal life, why do I say that his ability to give this temporal life pictures Christ's power to bring eternal life to the sinner? That's what I'm saying. So is this too much of a stretch? Right? Am I allegorizing the text? I have been taught not to do that. Send back your diploma if you do. That's what I've been told. So am I allegorizing the text? I don't think so. Hopefully not. Why? Drop down to verse 54. Notice how John refers to this miracle. Here's John's conclusion of the story. John calls this a sign. A sign. This is the second sign Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. That's a key word. Life is a key word. Sign is a key word. And the word sign here is the Greek word semeon. It's not the typical word used to describe a miracle in the New Testament. This is different. The most common word for miracle is dunamis. uh, Power. uh, The authority of the miracle worker. Another word is teros. It's translated as wonders. It's the awe that you feel when you see a miracle. But this is the word sign. The word means pointer, a picture, a signpost. So it's a supernatural work pointing beyond itself. The miracle is the surface, but there's a greater reality behind the miracle. This is more than just the power of the miracle or the authority of the miracle worker. This indicates that there's a truth that is being shown and pictured. Seven signs are in John's Gospel. He could have chosen any miracle. He chooses specific signs to point to greater realities of Jesus. So think about signs in this way. Let's just say, after lunch, we're going down to Oregon. Right? By the way, we were not wise. We did not turn back home. Okay? Wisdom. Wisdom. Not so much here. 
I thought it was good. It only took us about 13 hours to get to Portland. That's not bad, right? Think about signs in this way. You're driving down the highway and you see a sign that says some restaurant, right? Sign, some restaurant. No one here would pull off the side of the road and stop at the sign and order food, right? No one would do that. Why? Because the sign is pointing you what? To the restaurant, to go somewhere. And so you need to take that exit and go. That's the same idea here. The sign's leading you somewhere. Same thing with the signs in John's Gospel. They're leading us somewhere. Greater reality, greater power of Christ. Again, this miracle is far more than Jesus simply being able to give uh, health back to a child. We're not even told what the illness is here. No, this is Jesus having the power to grant eternal life to whomever he chooses. Connect it back to Nicodemus, verse 15 of chapter 3, whoever believes will in him have life, eternal life. Connect it back to his promise to the Samaritan woman, I can give you living water that will spring up to eternal life. Let's let the passage unfold. Here is Jesus, the giver of life. The giver of life. Five scenes. Five scenes. Let's just work our way through these. Rejoicing in our Savior. Scene number one, the affliction. Scene number one, the affliction. Start in verse 46. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee. Cool little map on the back here. Cana of Galilee. Leaves Samaria. He spent the last two days with the Samaritan uh, people. He's been teaching them life-giving truth there. He heads north to Galilee. He's uh, traveling through the Jezreel Valley. He comes to Cana, verse 46, where he had made the water wine. That was his first miracle. Private miracle. Only a few saw this, even knew about it. Here, though, he returns to Cana, and there's a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum, talking 20 miles away at this point. Now, in John chapter 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. He's the teacher of Israel. He's a Jew of all Jews. And he promises life to Nicodemus if Nicodemus would come to him in faith. In chapter 4, he speaks to the Samaritan woman. She's hated by the Jews, hated by the Jews. But still he promises her eternal life if she will come to him in saving faith. Now Jesus speaks to a third individual, a royal official. An official of the king, literally. The only king in this area would have been the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod Antipas. Why is that significant? Because Herod's the ruler who ordered the beheading of who? John the Baptist. That has already taken place. This royal official works for Jesus' arch enemy. As the story opens, you have the extent of Jesus' life-giving power. Verse 42, he is described as the Savior of the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not the world in the sense of every person in the world, but every kind of person in the world. You could be like Nicodemus, wealthy, religious, self-righteous. Christ can still save you. 
You can be the poor Samaritan woman, the half-breed, Jew-Gentile mix. There is salvation for you. You can even be a Herodian, an aristocratic member of the vengeful, openly sinful court of Herod. Praise be to Christ, right? Just think back to our past. Praise be to Christ that he saved us. He is the Savior of the world. His life-giving power knows no geographic, cultural, societal, even sinful limitations. He can give life to whomever he chooses. All those who possess saving faith. Now, with this man here, despite the man's position, despite his wealth, this nobleman, his civic influence, he has a severe problem. He cannot solve it himself. No doubt he's tried. Verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him. He leaves Capernaum, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. He travels 15, 20 miles west to Cana. It's a full day's journey, all uphill. And he has one hope. One hope. I need to speak to the miracle worker. I need to get to him. Jesus has performed miracles throughout Judea to the south. I want him to wield that same power that I've heard about in my own family. And he's desperate, desperate. You can hear the strain and emotion here. He was imploring him, imperfect tense, persistently begging him, pleading with him. Come with me to Capernaum. My son needs you. Now just to give you an idea of the intensity here. This word pleading, imploring, it's used seven times in the New Testament. Always highly impassioned requests. There's always emotion behind the request. Demons, demons are said to have implored Jesus. The emotion is fear. Fear. Don't send us to the abyss. It's fear. A man who's been released from demonic activity, he implores. This is overwhelming joy. He implores Jesus, let me come with you. Here it's anxiety. There's a loving father. And he's seen his son grow weak. Very life has drained away. He's watched his son burn up with a fever, verse 52 says. And he's tried everything. Tried everything. He's wealthy. No amount of money, though, can bring this healing. He's influential, yet no one has been able to ease the pain here. And he knows, verse 47, that his son is at the point of death. He begs, he pleads, desperation fills the request, death is imminent. Now, at this point, this man does not possess saving faith in Jesus. He only knows Jesus as the miracle worker. Word has spread that Jesus can perform these miracles. We see that back earlier. The Galileans, when he came to Galilee, verse 45, the Galileans received him. Why? Because they saw all the miracles he did down in Jerusalem at that Passover. 
Word has spread that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. That's what he said in the temple. This is my Father's house. But at this point, all this man believes about Jesus is he's a miracle worker, he's a healer. He has what John would call shallow faith. Superficial faith. A faith that wants a miracle, not necessarily the miracle worker. He wants the power of Jesus, not necessarily the person of Jesus. He wants the spectacular, not necessarily the Savior. How do we know this? Well, let's see number two, the rebuke. Jesus responds to this man with a rebuke. Notice how Jesus answers the man's request, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, he looks squarely in the eyes of this father. He sees the pain the father is feeling, the hopelessness that he has. And then Jesus says this, it's shocking. He says this, unless you people, plural now, all the Galileans, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. This man falls into that category of the Galileans with the shallow faith. Sir, your faith is deficient. Your request stems from an unbelieving heart. This is no mild rebuke. Later on, Jesus will say the same thing to the Pharisees. An evil and adulterous generation craves after a what? A sign. An evil and adulterous generation. I'm just shocked at this point reading the story. Shocked. Here's a father. Desperate for his son to live. He's fearful that his son is going to die. And this is the response he gets from Jesus. It's shocking. It seems heartless, doesn't it? Heartless. Jesus seems unmoved by the man's appeal here. But understand why. Understand the rebuke. Jesus has greater knowledge than us, than us. His wisdom is greater. He sees as God sees, and what Jesus knows here, there's a greater issue at stake. It's far greater than the temporal life of this man's son. Jesus knows that if this man's faith remains in the condition that it's in, remaining selfish, Temporal, shallow, no amount of physical healing would matter. Wouldn't matter. Jesus could heal the son physically, yes. But without saving faith, not only would this man's son eventually die, but this man and his whole family would eventually die in the worst possible way imaginable. There are two ways to die. You can die in Christ, or you can die in your sins. If that man died at that moment, he would die in his sins. If that son dies at that moment, he dies in his sins. The bigger issue here 
was the superficial, shallow faith of the man, not the physical, temporal healing of his son. So this one statement, Jesus' rebuke, it's meant to shake the man, bring conviction to the man's heart, to expose his deficiency of faith, its short-sightedness. It worked. It worked. Notice scene number three, the promise from the rebuke to the promise. Between verses 48 and 49, something happens. Well, we know what happens. Back in chapter three, Jesus said what has to happen. Chapter three, verse five, you need to be born of the Spirit. That's what takes place here. The Spirit of God causes Jesus' words to sting the man's heart, to bring conviction to the shallow faith. Look at verse 49. He repeats the request. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. But notice Jesus' response. It's different than the verse 48 response. There's no rebuke now. There's a promise. Jesus says this, Go, your son lives. And it's masterful here because Jesus is putting the man's faith to the test. Jesus is not giving the man what he's asking for. The man wants Jesus to come back with him. That's the request. Come back with me. Verse 47, come down and heal. Verse 49, come down before my child dies. Yeah, this is what Jesus says to him. I'm not going back with you. I'm not going with you. You need to go back home by yourself. Jesus actually commands the man to depart. Go, leave, leave now. There's so many things Jesus could do at this moment. So many things. He could have given him some miraculous sneak peek that the son has been healed. He could have given him some small wonder he could hold on to as he made that 20-mile journey back. He doesn't. All Jesus gave the man was his word. That's it. Three words. Your son lives. Jesus' words here, they are not a prediction. He doesn't say your son will live. It's not a prophecy here. Your son's going to live. This is a declaration of miracle power. Your son right now, present tense, has been given life. He lives in full. So understand the dilemma. The dilemma of this father. What Jesus has just claimed to do is very unique. Very unique. Long distance miracles, long distance miracles of healing are very rare in the Old Testament. I can come up with one. While I was studying this, I called the youth pastor who we did call, called him. Great guy, by the way. Great guy. Um, I called him in. I said, hey, I have a job for you. I need you to read the entire Old Testament and come up with some long-distance miracle that took place. He goes, right on that, right on that. 
I'm still waiting for him to get back to me, but that's all right. I can come up with one long-distance miracle in the Old Testament, just one. In fact, in Greek culture, the superstition of the day was this. Any magician or anyone who claimed to be able to perform some wonder, that person had to be present in the room for the miracle to take place. I think that's why the Father was so insistent for Jesus to go with him. Old Testament prophets only healed when they were present. And so this Father faces a dilemma of faith. This is a test that will reveal the true nature of his belief. If he leaves, as Jesus has said, if he leaves, he is leaving his boy's only chance of survival in Cana. He's starting on a 20-mile journey back home. It's going to take a full day. And he knows when he left, his child could die at any moment. And he's leaving, if he does leave, he's leaving with no tangible proof that what Jesus said is true. No evidence from Jesus that something actually happened. He has no small miracle to hold on to. All he has is Jesus' word. What would this man do? What would you do? kind of faith did this man possess? Verse 50. The man believed. The man faithed. And notice, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. He is one of Jesus' sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they what? Follow me. They obey me. He possesses Hebrews 11.1 1, faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the what? The conviction of things not seen. The rebuke of verse 48 no longer applies to this man. His faith is different from the superficial Galileans of the day. They needed signs and wonders to believe. In fact, in John chapter 6, you will have this statement. After Jesus uh, performs the miracle of, of loaf upon loaf upon loaf of bread, 15,000 people fed. What do they say? They say to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe? Do something else. Do something else. I just fed 20,000 people. What do you want me to do? Do anything. Why? It's shallow faith. It's selfish faith. I just want the miracle. I don't necessarily want the person. But not so with this man. All this man needed was Jesus' words. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And as is always the case, Jesus always fulfills his promises. See number four, the reports. The reports. Look at verse 51. As he was now going down, so he's leaving the high ground of Cana, he's descending back to Capernaum. His slaves met him, saying that his son was living Again, same word, living. Same word in verse 10. 
living water. Again, this is all about Jesus being able to give this life, this eternal life. This is a picture of it. When the father left, his son was at the point of death. Now, he's alive. He's well. Verse 52, so he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Just notice the father, his question, when did he begin to get better? When did he start to improve? In his mind, it would be a gradual process, right? That's how people are healed. That's how we get better. It's gradual. Servants say at the seventh hour, the fever left. It's gone. So remarkable, I can pinpoint the time. Nothing gradual here. Instantly the fever leaves. That's how Jesus' healing miracles always worked. Instantaneous, always complete. Not only did the fever leave the boy, strength now was restored back to this child. Amazing, so much strength that these servants actually stop caring for the boy so that they can come meet the father. Now notice just a bit about the father's faith here. Again, verse 52. The boy's healing took place yesterday. Yesterday at the seventh hour. That is 7 p.m. the night before. Which means this, the father was not able to go right back home. He needed to spend the night. Why? It's the lateness of the hour, long distance, bandits along the way. He would have had to spend the night waiting until the morning hours to start back home. Perhaps even clinging to Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may last for what? The night, but joy. Joy comes in the morning. He's believing the words of Christ. He's resting on those. Again, convinced of things not seen. Why is he convinced? Because Jesus promised it. He promised it. And the time stamp here indicates that this healing is no accident, it's no coincidence. Verse 53, so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. There's no other possible explanation here. Jesus' words. This is the power of Jesus over illness, over sickness. All of that is confirmed. He is the promised Messiah. He is who Isaiah has prophesied of, that the Messiah comes when he does. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. That's what this child does. He leaps up. He's well. Jesus is giving a foretaste of this coming kingdom. What this life, this better, forever, even glorified life would be. And the way Jesus performed this miracle confirms that he is no ordinary prophet. No ordinary prophet. He has the ability to pronounce healing from a distance. 20 miles away, With three words. He supersedes all the prophets before him. He's greater than all of them. Better than all of them. 
He possesses exactly what John has said in the opening chapter. In Him was life. How much life is in Christ? So much life, He can give life to a boy 20 miles away. How much life is in Christ? In chapter 5, Jesus will say, There is coming a time when the sun will speak and everyone in the tombs will rise. That's how much life He has. Verse 53, speaking of the Father, he himself believed. That is to say he grew in his faith. That's what saving faith does, it trusts. It obeys. It grows. But notice John just simply records that the Father believed. He doesn't tell us what the Father believed. That's just open-ended. It's just the Father believed. Well, we know that this is not referring to Jesus' words of healing in verse 50. He already believed that. That's why he left Jesus. So what does the Father believe here? It's more than just the miracle power. He now believes the person of Jesus. He believes the person of Jesus. He believes him to be more than a miracle worker. He believes those reports. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the coming Messiah. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, From that day forth, he became a disciple of the Lord Jesus. He follows him, not as a healer only, nor as a prophet only, nor as a Savior only, but as his Lord and his God. His hope... His trust and his confidence are fixed upon Jesus as the true Messiah. Remember, saving faith, through saving faith comes life. And what did this faith of the Father do? It permeates the entire household. Verse 53 Not only did he himself believe, but saving faith came to his whole household, from the servants to his family to his healed son. So what saving faith does, like the Samaritan woman, the father could not stay silent about Christ. He speaks. Again, to continue Spurgeon, not only was the child cured, but the whole household was cured. Father did not know when he went pleading about his boy that he himself needed to be saved. The mother also probably thought only of her son. But now, salvation has come to the whole family. And the fever of sin and unbelief is gone away with the other fever. This was the greater issue at stake. This is why Jesus gave that rebuke. Eternal life was at stake in these souls. The first town to possess saving faith in Jesus, a Samaritan village. The first family to possess saving faith in Jesus, a Herodian household. He is the Savior of the world. 
Finally, scene number five, the meaning. Scene number five, the meaning. Look at this, verse 54. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, the healing of this boy was spectacular. Again, it's a sign. It's a sign post. There's a greater reality here. There's a greater miracle that Jesus can and will perform. This is the second sign. The first sign took place in Cana. It was turning water into wine. It shows Jesus has the ability to change the molecular structure of something, sure. But it's more than that. That was Jesus demonstrating that he can do what no religious ritual could ever do. He could purify the sinner from their sins. But here's the second sign Jesus performs. He gives this boy back his temporal life. He demonstrates his authority, his power, his willingness to grant the more significant kind of life. He can give eternal life. He's the fountain of living water to all who come to him in saving faith. You know, this father was concerned that his boy was going to die this day. The boy didn't die this day. But you know what? The boy did eventually die. But he was given what? Life. Life. It's the very nature of eternal life. Once it's given, it can never be taken away. Throughout John's gospel, promises of eternal life echo from page to page. Here's a picture of Jesus' power to give life to whoever he chooses. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Here's the promise. I myself will raise him up on the last day. I'll give spiritual life, I'll give physical life, glorified life. John 10.10, I came that they, that they all who come to me in faith, that they may have life. That's why I came. John 11.25 Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. But then Jesus asks this question. Do you believe this? That's the purpose of the gospel, isn't it? Do you believe this? Do you find your life in Jesus alone? Do you live now with eternal life in mind? Is it that real to you? That you're looking forward to that reward? To that future life? Is this your hope? That in Christ and Christ alone, through faith alone, you have eternal life forever. Forever. Do you believe this? Father, I trust that your son has been glorified this morning. 
I trust that your spirit, through the power of your words, has worked. Lord, I pray that your spirit would grant new hearts to those who need them. New birth. And for us who have already come to you in saving faith, strengthen our faith. Give us eyes to be able to see beyond this temporal life. Cause us to choose obedience, faithfulness. Why? Because we are living for the reward. We are living for the later. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.